0: Good morning and welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, W-E-A-A 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Well, there's a number of things that uh, we're going to try to wrestle with here in this first hour uh, with our guests. Um, And around, we've been obviously covering what's been happening around this country with the police being shot in Dallas, the police murders of two people, uh, killings, I should say, of two people uh, in Baton Rouge uh, and um in St Paul, and also in New York City, the other night, um, and what that pretends for Baltimore, really, and we saw what happened here last night where there was a visual f- for a young man who had been killed in our community, uh and uh, five people were injured when they were uh, open somebody opened fire on that crowd. Uh, and there's a report that just came out from Harvard University from Roland Fryer, who is a, an economist, also happens to be the youngest African-American to receive a tenure at Harvard, who came out with a study that shocked him, he said, um, that, which found huge racial disparity in police use of force but not shootings. Um, and so I've been trying to read this pretty thoroughly to see what all this means because it's, uh, it's, co- it's complex. It's not as simple as the, he- as the headlines w- would make it. And we'll talk about all that and more with our two guests. Major Neil Franklin's with us. Of course, Neil Franklin is a retired uh, uh, Maryland State and City Police officer, uh, 33 years. Do I have that right this time? 34. 34. I always want to give you l- one less. Why is that?
1: Well, you know, I know how you are. <laughs> <laughs> I always want to give less to people, especially me, but that's okay. I'm good. He's love not, you, brother.
0: <laughs> love you too, Neil. Uh, e- and he's executive director of Leap Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And the Reverend Kevin Slayton is pastor of the New Waverly United Methodist Church and president of the Interdenominational Ministerial Alliance of Metropolitan Baltimore. Kevin, good to have you in the studio. Good to be here, Mark. And you all can join us here at 410-319-888. Uh, you can write to us here at org. You can um, uh, also tweet us at Mark Steiner. So let's just begin. I... And I want you to join us, folks, at 410-319-8888. So what I just outlined here, I mean, they're, they're, we're clearly in a place, Neil, where violence violence has always been an integral part of this country, obviously. Most people know – most of us realize that, that that's a reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But something is really – something has shifted. Um, I think it's shifted in terms of our knowledge of it because of the, the media presence, because of what we're videotaping and seeing – but when you have a situation where police are shoot, shot at in Washington D.C., uh, where the f- five are killed in Dallas, um, and and these reports coming out now, I, I think that we really are at a loss to figure out what our strategies and responses to violence inside of our communities and to the violence part of our police departments. I, I think we really don't. I haven't don't. People don't seem to have a handle on which way to go, which way to turn, what to implement, how to change things.
1: Well, one of the things that I've seen as as we talk about this violence throughout the time that I've been doing this work, even before I left law enforcement, so it's going back at least a decade, is that as now, we are really stuck in dealing with the symptoms. We are fixed on short-term solutions for what really are the symptoms of a much larger problem, which is exactly what you said, the violence In this country, which has always been about this country, this country came into existence through violence, and we've never uh, begun to shed that Mm -hmm. since then. And now we're at a place where, you know, you don't hear as the average citizen, you don't hear about the violence through, you know, an occasional newspaper or, or a TV report. It's readily available on your smartphone. Everybody has access to not just hearing about it, but to actually witnessing the violence. And it's really, it's, 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 emotionally, it's extremely difficult to deal with, especially when you believe that that violence is directed, in, in many cases, towards you as an individual because of your skin color. And that's kind of like what we're dealing with now as it relates to the, the recent shootings and so on. But we've got to get to a place where we start to create and develop long-term strategies for dealing with violence as a whole. This issue of the police and the violence that we're now witnessing, which is nothing new. We're just now able to see it, the, the violence that we're witnessing at the hands of the police for you know a, a complex— it's a complex issue, so I'm not going to try to break that down as I'm explaining this right now. But as we're witnessing it, we need to have long-term solutions for dealing with this. And that means we're, what we're what I'm talking about here is the family unit. You see, because we've got to be dealing with our children and guiding and raising our children from the time that they are born uh, in, in an environment absent violence. And 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 how we get there is is a long road. It's going to take a lot. It's going to take all of us. But what I'm saying is we've got to start working on long-term solutions while dealing with this, the short-term problems that we're, we're now seeing. We've we got to have both of those working at the same time. And, and this, it's the violence regarding our police. Yes, we're, it's playing out right now in a white-black, or should I say a blue and black scenario. But let me tell you, there are white groups out there, too, that are extremely upset about the overbearing presence and authority and violence of the police um, as well. But uh, me as a black man, I, I, I see it from a different perspective. Kevin.
2: I, I would first begin by suggesting that as a society we've become rather morally ambivalent. And we live in a, in a state not Maryland, but, but in a, as, as a society whereby our morals are so out of balance and what we've allowed to pass over the last several decades that now when we need to reach and rely on morals to correct society, they're not there. I would take us back to um, a period in time in this, this country which is known as the Nadir period, uh, 1901 to 1923, post-Reconstruction while, while African Americans were celebrating great victories, uh, the society at large totally ignored them. And we had some of the most heinous crimes happen to black folk as they thought they were making progress. No one can deny it in 2016. Black folk in America feel as though we have really uh, achieved some great things. But in the process, we've left an overwhelming majority of people. The communities that many of us have come out of uh, to struggle to find their way on their own um, and sort of navigate life through a system of public policies that for the last 50, 60 years have um, worked parallel one another to totally destroy and decimate uh, those communities. If we were to have a discussion about the Great Society, LBJ, everyone would be excited about from a policy standpoint about these progressive policies that that move forward from there right but but once you dig beneath the policy you'd have to say how how great was that how how good was it for uh this housing to be made available to poor low income african american women with the caveat you can't have a man living here with you you, you know so so how how now do you redefine the home um you send men off to war a very cruel period of time, in Vietnam, to fight for rights that they don't even have here. Large majority, my father included, comes back addicted. They have no place to go. They go to the home. Well, you can't stay here. And so this cycle begins. And here we are now with um, a conversation that really deals with the, the, the respect for authority.
0: So... All right. So here we are, folks. And do join us here at 410-319-8888. I want to hear your thoughts and ideas about where uh, we are and where this, where, what we have to do here. But I want to kind of really focus in a bit on where we are in this city and what, you, and, and what we're supposed to and, – and how you change the way things are. The, the report that came out of Harvard University that I mentioned earlier um, by, by, um, uh, by this Roland Fryer, who's an economics professor at Harvard, he was shocked by the findings. And I was looking at some of what the findings were, and that, and that the work focused um, on what happens when, when police have stopped civilians, but not um, not, um, not necessarily about the risk of being stopped at will, right? Mm-hmm. But when they're stopped, it showed that more the black people are more likely to be physically abused or verbally abused by police, have their hands put on them, handcuffed, put up against the wall, um, and and it, it, et etc. And that really went along with, as I said earlier, with the report that came out of the No Boundaries Coalition, which is an organization of five West Side communities, and they came together and put out this report where they interviewed people um, in that community, five hundred of them, and they talked about the the, uh, the 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 verbal and physical abuse that they felt at the hands of police in the city, especially verbal abuse, um, even more than physical abuse, and so and the disrespect they felt. So that to me and I and I've been saying this all along and some people have gotten a pushback from this I've gotten pushback from this because I've been talking about how I think in some ways this is a a a problem that shows the depth greater than when we see deaths at the hands of uh, when somebody's in police custody. And I think so so the question is how do you begin to 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 to, to address that? How does that change? You know, how does that Become not the way we police our streets. I mean, I think that's to me, and again, that's the issue that also affects this the the psyche and the psychology of children, of families, of whole communities. I, mean, I agree. I think, I think from, that's, from, from
2: childbirth, that's what parenting is. Parenting sort of teaches you. You know, if you do this, you know, and it, it doesn't align with what we think is right or how we raise you to be right, then then we correct you. Um, I think the reason we're having these conversations now is that. In far too many of these cases, there's been no consequences, and so if there are no consequences to actions, people continue to do what they do, if not escalate them even more. and so there seems to be no no boundaries or no rights for the poor to have. I mean, what rights do we think that the poor have? Who are they? you know why Why should we respect them that That's the mentality that comes in and so if you continue to treat poor people like that and there's no consequences for your your mistreatment of them. Why not? Everybody else treats them like that. So,
1: so and, you know, it is about um, accountability. It is about holding people responsible, especially those people who we put in a position of police officers who are paid uh, to do a job, uh, to serve their communities. And I want to reflect back to Chief Brown in Dallas, who had been making great strides as it relates to this very topic, and a great reduction in complaints that have come from the community because of his move to get the police officers to respect the people they are serving. And uh, he was continuing to go in that direction. This is not You know, this this is not – when we talk about respect, these are not two citizens who are on equal level, you know, respecting each other. Mm -hmm. One is a citizen. The other is a police officer who is in a position, a voluntary – I mean, voluntary position. You know, you volunteer for this job, okay? You're you're not drafted into it. You know, to go out there and to serve the public and to respect the public, to treat them with dignity and respect, to help them resolve their issues – And we are trained. We know that we will uh, at times get uh, pushback and and disrespect from the public. You know, there's a lot of reasons for that. We know that this is coming time after time after time from the public. And we train and we should know how to deal with this. Unfortunately, I think many times we as police officers, we make it personal when someone starts pushing back. And, again, the policies, the things that we're having the police do, and, you know, you know what, Mark, you know I want to talk about drug policy, the war on drugs, which you can't have a war on drugs. It's always got to be a war on people, and as we go out here and and zero-tolerance policies – Uh, stop and frisk in new york where we've got 86 percent of the people being stopped black and brown people you know talking about what you were just saying about this interaction with police and citizens you know when you have that going on day after day after day after day you're going to piss off a lot of people even if you're being respectful in doing it but excuse me sir but yes we're going to strip search you right here in the middle of uh, north avenue Um, i'm not cussing at you or anything but we're going to degrade you right here in front of your friends and family. And, you know, we're going to make you sit on a curb in the rain. We're going to search your car. We're going to pull your pockets inside out. And we're going to do it day after day after day after day. Yeah, you're going to have problems after a while. So we've got to stop giving the police things to do. We've got to stop having, you know, using our police to solve a public health crisis. Criminal justice solutions.
3: It doesn't work. So our policies.
0: Todd, you welcome to the
3: program. To be here, I've got the ten thirty time slot per my text. So <laughs> sorry, sorry to miss out on well, you. on time, first, 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 first part, first part of the fun. But, uh, you're on time, know, don't don't want to uh, disturb anything in the, in the midst of what is uh, a compelling conversation. Always good to see you, my brother.
0: <laughs> so I mean, let you weigh in here. I mean, I think. Uh, let me pause something here. I mean, I think that there are a lot of there are a lot of levels to this, and I think that folks, I want to hear your experiences in the community 410-319-8888. I want to hear from the police officers as well. I've talked to several police officers recently who'd love to come on and talk to you so I don't have clearance from the police department to do it, I'd do so, which I would want to hear from them, which we don't hear from them enough, I think, in these conversations or in the dialogue with the community. But the problem is there is no dialogue in the community. One of the things that I suggested to, on the, well, no, one at a time. I, I remember when Bielfeld was commissioner. Uh, he and I were had a meeting, and one of the things I suggested to him in that meeting was that you need to just take... Uh, patrol officers and walk into people's homes, have a barbecue, have a cup of coffee, sit down and talk, know who you're, who's being, whose communities you're patrolling, who lives in those communities and they have to know who you are. That's just at one level. I mean, we're just so completely separate from who we are and the police become a mark of a force of authority as opposed to a force of protection. And that's what I think we've we've come to. And, I mean, that's part of the dilemma that we face right now.
3: I I think our dilemma is we we tend to operate with this idealistic understanding of how policing emerged in this country. If we go back to its genesis, there's kind of this northern-southern split between what the role of policing was. Right. Those who could afford it in the north, it was— kind of keep my stuff safe. For those in the South, uh, we we needed to make sure that uh, we had slave patrols to be able to make sure that there was geographic control and maintenance of black bodies, which is actually what a lot of urban policing looks like. It is the geographic control. Let's do Geographic containment, keep the problems localized, keep the tactics focused, so that then we can maintain, uh, I think, a certain level of control of what the quote-unquote problem is. And so if, if, if we understand the history of how policing emerges, policing in, in, in at its core was not designed for relational engagement. The police were never intended to be my friend. They were intended to be a force to keep me in my place. So if we're trying to do a remodeling, a redesign of the structure of policing, then it has to start going all the way back to its core. What is the framework, the function and the purpose of police departments across the street um uh, across the country rather. And and so that's that's one of the the challenges that I think we're confronting. And so you have this this I heard the word uh uh, Kevin mentioned moral ambivalence at, at the very beginning of his comments, but there's an ambivalence in terms of what kind of policing do we want, both on the part of police leadership, but also uh, in terms of uh, what the community's response should be. And so, I, I don't, I don't know where where we started. If, if who's coming to my house for the barbecue? That's the first thing. <laughs> I mean, seriously, right, right, you know, right. right. Fo- folks that come to my house for a barbecue are folks that I know and my friends. I'm not trying to get to know you sitting on my deck, kicking it with me. If we don't have a pretext to set, uh, set the framework for us to build on that, and not to, not to diminish the framework, but I think we got to get there step sooner. Here's what I would offer. Before you graduate from the academy, some of your ride along should not just be with your uh, supervisory uh, uh, evaluator, but you ought to ride along and see the community through the eyes of somebody who lives there before they put you on a beat in a neighborhood that you don't know, trying to enforce laws on people that you've never even met. We've got to create this new framework and a new policy that's going to get us out of this malaise because it is, it is deeply embedded in the structure.
0: So let me open the phones here and see what our listeners are thinking and come right back to everybody in this room. 410 319 Let's go to Harold online for you on the air. Welcome.
4: I uh, um I I've, I've been listening and it's a very complicated it's a very complicated issue and I don't have faith I'm being honest with you I don't have faith in in the, the policymakers I, I I talk all the time at the dinner table I have a black son and I talk all the time about us being more together and I I, I feel like that's where the answers are for me is like, is us because a lot of times I see even, you know, when it, whether I'm in Baltimore um, or any of these cities, I see people that, you know, that don't, we don't value our own lives. I'm talking as a collective and I wanna see us, I wanna see us get to a point where we value our lives and I feel like we can develop respect in a community, because I feel like the politics, it's all, it's all about money and power and the voices that have money and power get heard so we can march till we we, we can't even you know, walk anymore, and I feel like we won't be heard, because it, one voice can have a billion dollars, and that voice speaks so much louder than all the others. That's all I have to say. Thank
1: you. So, I, I think what he's referring to is, and and speaking uh, re, what are the results of, is the decimation of, decimation of the Black Family Unit. Um. And and, uh, and there are many reasons for that, from, from our economic policies uh, to housing that was mentioned earlier. Uh, again, you know, the war on drugs, the criminal justice system, which plays a significant role in the decimation of the black family unit over the past four or five decades in this country. Um, and and the numbers of black family leaders, both men and women, there's been an 800 percent, and we don't talk about women enough, there's been an 800 percent increase in black women going to prison over the past four decades, and we don't talk enough about that. And so if if you've got this challenge within the black family and then people return home from prison, they can't get jobs, they're still in this economic uh, uh, spiral, you know, downward spiral, you know, it makes it extremely difficult to – Raise your children, you know, with the 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 morality framework that uh, the pastor was talking about, and so but, yeah, again, it's it's just it's but, but, much deeper.
0: But but, but let me just push a bit here, I push back a little bit here before I go to the phones. I mean, I don't believe, I don't think the black family is falling apart. I think that, I mean, your family is not falling apart. Your family's not falling apart, Reverend Your family's not falling apart. I would, I would disagree. Well, no, wait a minute. You have, as most people who work in this station, most people who are in the middle class, their families are as solid as anybody else's in America.
2: We're, we're a different group. But, I think but, that,
0: let, me, let, me, let me finish. So what I'm saying is, what we're saying is, though, is that poor folks in this country, poor black folks in this country especially, that's where the families are falling apart because of mass incarceration, because of unemployment, because of isolation, because of the incarceration of more and more women uh, in, in this case. It was
3: designed that way. That,
0: that's, that's where
3: it's falling apart.
1: Right. So, so that's,
3: that's my point. So let's – again, we got to look at historical trajectory. Mm-hmm. The, the notion of black family structure being of value is a fairly recent phenomenon. We go back and look at the history of the country you could tear those relationships at will at any time as a part of an economic decision fast forward to the 20th century when we start seeing the implementation of public policy and the use of public funds to support poor people uh, andrew billingsley when he did his early on experiment and he sent his students out to sit in the parking lots of the high-rise uh, public housing projects he said he saw something particularly familiar that uh, the social service monitors to make sure that there was no man in the house would leave at about 11 o'clock at night. Right. And at about 1 o'clock, something about. else yeah. you would mm-hmm. see is that the fathers would show up, sneak into the units, stay until about 4 o'clock to be able to see their families yep. and get out before the monitors came back. Right. Otherwise, the family lost its public benefits. So this is not just a matter of families falling apart. It is a matter of families collapsing under the weight of a system that has been designed designed against their self-interest. And if we don't fix the system, we're going to continue to have the
0: problem. Absolutely. Do we have to take a break here? Take a very quick break and come right back and come right back with Kevin Slayton and back to the phones of 410-319-8888. Isolation, poverty, police behavior are not separate issues, but all intertwined. Come back and let's have your voice heard. As we left off during the break, we were talking about really there is an intersection between the issues of isolation, poverty, black family policing in America. We are here with the, the Reverend Todd Yeary, Major Neil Franklin, and uh, the Reverend Kevin Slayton. And before we go back to the phones, which we do Khalik, you're the next caller up, we're going to come to your call. Um,
2: the, point, Kevin. the point I wanted to make was it's easy to identify a group of quote unquote middle class, established African American folks and say they reflect. The progress, I think that was the. um, There's an article in New York Times this morning that says that becomes the problem with the passage of civil rights legislation. Okay, now there's an example of black folk who have made it. Now you put on to that as Eugene Robinson talks about in disintegration, this um, this this transcending class. Now you can point at there was a time where everybody started a sentence when we talked about these issues and black folk and their progress. They said, "Well, you got Bill Cosby, you know, you got Michael Jordan, you got Oprah." You point out these folks, but the mass of the folks who look like me in this city don't come and talk on on shows about their conditions. On this show they do. They, but well, I mean, <laughs> but, but but still, there's there's not enough show to have all of no, them I agree on. I
0: agree with you. I agree. I agree with that completely. So so, yeah, so, right. Right. so
2: so we have to we have to find a place of compassion. I think that is my call, um and my vocation is to sort of be the voice. For that community that 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 does not, and I can say that from my perspective, the family structure is definitely torn
0: and it is and and I so that 's why all these things are are not interrelated uh, are not unrelated, they are interrelated mm-hmm. and you you know we can we can one of the things i've posited to some people, and I want to put this out there even. In a, in a bigger way, it's just changing the entire nature of how we look at public safety is one level of it. Uh, maybe money – and I'll put this out here see what you all think. Maybe money should come out of the police budget. Yes, take it out of the police budget. And maybe the front line of taking care of communities should be in many ways in the community itself. When when Mayor Kurt – then Mayor Kurt Schmoke and Housing Commissioner Dan Henson – uh, signed a contract with the Food of Islam Incorporated, not FOI, but the company they, security company they created and hired also non-NOI mm-hmm. members as well mm-hmm. to be in that group. Uh, and they, they, they patrolled and ran security for all the highs, high-rise projects in Baltimore. Crime went down. Assaults went down. Shootings went down. They patrolled it unarmed, men and women. They were the front line. They helped quell the violence. You take people like that, safe streets, or the women in Out for Justice, and and or the women who have worked with power inside, former sex workers who want to become health workers in the community, and use them as the front line for people, and let the police kind of be back up where they need to be, and understand the community more by working with that. Maybe that's how we have to redesign how we think of public safety, mm-hmm. and not just police officers with guns in the community resolving every issue that happens. That 13-year-old boy would never have been shot in his leg had... It'd been if we had a different model, with some man would have gone up to him, as Carlos Muhammad said in this program, and said, uh, "Son, what what is that in your hand? What are you doing? Come here, let's talk." We'd have a we'd have a different. We, maybe we have to completely, radically
2: rethink how we patrol our communities. And because that is not going to happen, how about we prosecute officers who kill black people? Well, we are well, prosecuting. Maybe it. that might. Well, maybe gonna... that might help. But
3: but but, but it's, it's interesting that we're still using the language of geographic control patrolling our communities. What are we patrolling? We're patrolling the poorest, the most vulnerable, the most difficult to survive communities, and then we say, on top of it, we want you to behave under those conditions. That's the most insane proposition. We don't do it, it... We wonder why, when we look at the comparison in the neighborhoods... That uh, crime is lower in some as opposed to others It's before you get It's not the matter of the criminality It's if we look at Maslow's hierarchy And turn it on its head If I'm safe If I have my core needs met Then I am now equipped and empowered to be my own agent I don't need an external controller To make me act like uh, I'm going to behave by the rules It's the insanity of thinking You can keep adding to the police budget This is the conversation going on We're spending more in some jurisdictions On incarceration than we do on education that's obvious. That's an obvious one You can't miss that When your educational system becomes embedded In your system of control When you have to have a GED inside the joint To be able to get a job But you can't get a GED or a job If you're outside on the street What do you expect that you're going to get Except high recidivism This is not rocket science and,
2: It and, and, is and, and, let's start with the basics But then you also I mean there's such great work to do With regards to changing um, Americans' image of black folk I'll give you an example. It, a couple of years ago in Annapolis, there was a legislation with regards to transfer of records of juveniles. It went before the committee. They were waiting on a vote. Did a, you know, backdoor count. Looked like it was dead. Majority of Republicans didn't want, you know, why, why do we need to transfer these kids' records from one place? So I recognized the role of race. So I went to my Republican colleagues who were on the committee, and I said, Here, here's the problem. These kids are transferring from Baltimore City to your counties, and we don't know what records they've got. And by the time they get to your county, we don't know what may have happened. They went back in, and it won unanimously because in their mind, they're criminal. It's once we begin to – when when you give birth to children that when they become of age 7 and 8, people automatically begin to view them As criminals, you've got work to do with changing the perceptions that we have of people. You know, children are children. We have to allow them to be that. We have to allow them to grow up in a space and view them all with having that potential to be something. That's not relating to budgets. That's how we conduct ourselves as a society. We have to begin to move away from the rhetoric uh, we, we see all of God's children created equal and begin to move and act that way. So, the,
0: the, Just, I, we, I do you want to get back to the phone show. I promise I'll do that. Go okay. ahead, Neil.
1: So your question about the budget and moving right. up from public – well, and we do need to redefine public safety because we've been using the police and law enforcement, to, uh, which encompasses all of public safety. We've recently sent some folks over to Europe police officers and police leaders over to Europe to look at what they're doing because they don't have these problems the way that we do over there. They're not killing people nearly as much as we are. Yeah, and I not know e- that's not even about guns. Not even close. But, but here's the thing: <laughs> they look close. they 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 look at public safety as a complete picture of of health, education, and, and so on, and that's where right. the money goes. And their and their policing is based upon their public safety model is based upon the nine basic peeling principles of policing, which many of our law enforcers over here say that they do. What they don't, because if we did, and where we should be moving to is that the police are governed by the community. You see, the, we. Every narrative that I'm hearing is that it's us, them. It's a partnership. If there's a partnership, that means that they are two individual entities. The police should be a segment of the community, one and the same. And if we truly adopt these basic principles that they're using in Europe and other countries, we would have that, and the police would be governed by the community, and the public safety model wouldn't, law enforcement would just be a very small piece of that. We would then look at health. We would look at education. We would look at right. housing. We would look at all those social conditions that have been proven to reduce crime in communities.
0: So – and by the way, let me say, Todd, thanks for pulling me up on the use of the word patrol because it's easy to slip into that. You know, um, even
3: – I got you, my brother. <laughs> I'm, look, we cover each other. So <laughs> – <laughs> so, but
0: no, I think that – but I think that, that – that, that, The model I'm talking about is something that we really have to think seriously. You're talking about people who act as community healers, uniters, unifiers, helping people through the crises they find while people are battling for the right to housing, uh, the right to decent schools, and for jobs in this community. They're not inseparable, but there's got to be something that can help also bring peace to people's lives while the struggle is going on because too many people are getting hurt, too many people are being killed in the community, and that has to stop. You know, you, you just, it's just that, that madness.
2: What, what, what must it be like to grow up in a community where you don't see hope, where well, there is no oh, hope? Right. Can, can, can most folks imagine that?
0: No, most people cannot imagine that. Most folks
2: that. can't I, imagine that. I, I, would, I would
3: rather I, I, imagine something else. Let me throw this out. then I'll make to the phone. Yeah, get, yeah get to the phone right here. I wonder what it would be like one day to wake up one morning and not have to be concerned about what may happen to me because I'm black. Oof. Right. You can go to the phone now. No, that's right. No, that's right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the reality. There are some folks that there are all of these myriad issues that contribute, that race is such a prominent factor that right. you don't know what might change the dynamic of your day simply because of your skin
0: color. Which is why I say, and I said to the mayor and said to anybody else who who's, comes on the show with that kind of power, yeah, there are two things. That any policy that we uh, that we develop in the city of Baltimore, if it does not deal directly with what you just said, Tadieri, affecting the end, building towards the end of racism in this, in this city and country. And if it doesn't affect the poorest people in this community, then it's not worth the policy, the paper it's written on. ABC
3: T-ray. has a framework of policy analysis that I think is helpful. To, to look at what are the impact. They've got a number of points that you would use to evaluate that very thing. I think we've got to get folks at the table and have the conversation.
0: 410 319 Let's get to the phones here. A lot of people are holding on for a while. Let's get, hear their thoughts. Khalik, you're on the air.
5: Yes, this is a very good um, conversation. Thank and you. the points that you brought out, Mark, uh, I, I really appreciate them. I happen to be one of those FOI that at work uh, the um, anti- um, negatives in the projects, at not only at Paradise Manor in D.C., but over here in Baltimore also. Uh, We, FOI, are pledged to uh, treat our people humanely. Those are our brothers and sisters, period. That's it. It doesn't, you know, hands down. And what we see in the police, they don't have that same um, spirit and uh, demeanor or manner about them, because that is not... What they are, um, uh, want to do. Uh, they're not trained that way. But I wanted to hit on some very basic things. Uh, when you look at a problem like the stop, uh, where, where, where the brother of Philando was, um, murdered in his car, uh, that, that was real. That, I mean, number one, those kind of stops and dynamics like that occur been occurring in a black community I am a child of the 60s we've had those kind of engagements throughout my life okay so and and now with the technological age a a policeman does not have to stop a car that has a broken taillight he can call it in he can they can they can note it down and do it uh via the media uh, the digital, the tech- technology that we have, and just send a ticket in the mail for the person to repair the car. That goes to the car owner. It has nothing to do with a crime or nothing like that. A broken taillight doesn't mean anything because we can still put our hand out to make a left turn and put our put our hand out to make a right turn. Right. You see what I'm saying? Right. See, so these kind of things are ridiculous. They are nothing but excuses and as and, and we feel the oppression in the community. That is oppression. And and I you know and, and it goes right to the heart of those who are in charge. So we all buy their narrative of uh, well police life is more valuable than our brother or sister under oppression that we feel daily. Because we know they don't have it in their heart to treat us right. It's like a pretense every day on the street. It's a pretense. They call uh, Baltimore, uh, the west side, ground zero. That's a military term. And it's a military term that that, that really uh, suggests strong...
1: So, it's... This is one of the reasons, brother. So, I I guess this is one of the reasons why we have to completely rebuild policing in this country from the ground up, as Pastor Uri said. You can't tweak with it, you have to rebuild it. Regarding those stops that you're talking about, it's not about the broken taillight. It's not about the tag light out. It's about looking for other things. It's about finding the drugs. It's about finding the guns. It's about seeing if you've got a warrant on you, who else is in the car. It's a reason for us, the police, to stop you and to go through your pocket, your car, your life with a fine-tooth comb. And when you're black, believe me, that broken tail light means a whole lot more to that police officer
3: who's out there looking for other things. But, but watch so, this, Re- real quick. Hayen v. North Carolina, because I know you want to get to, uh, yes, to a call, call. call
0: coming up uh, from the, Baton Rouge, I want to get the, to. Okay,
3: the so. Supreme Court has changed the structure in recent decisions about how you do policing. Hayen v. North Carolina, police officer pulls over a driver believing that he had violated the law for having a dysfunctional tail light. Come to find out, if you have one tail light functioning other one not functioning you're not in violation of law so they they find some stuff in the car they tried to squash the warrant uh and the search uh and the supreme court said that the lack of knowledge about the law under the circumstances, was reasonable, and so they validated the search of the car and everything else that they found. So if a police Mm -hmm. officer doesn't really know the law, but they think that the law that they are applying is reasonable under the circumstances, then the Supreme Court has basically said you have a context to make everything else that comes after that valid. So when we start looking at the evolution of all of the stuff, we got to have a serious structural change to this because the game is rigged. So
0: and, and we can, and and those structural changes can begin in in these in our in our own city by changing the rules of engagement. I Absolutely, mean, that's where and
2: changing the people who engage and changing. <laughs> yeah, that,
0: that. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Owusu and Baton Rouge, are on the air. Welcome, Owusu, line four.
6: I, I live in uh, uh, Baton Rouge now. I'm originally from Baltimore. Right. I'm, I've been there since eighty uh, seven. Early life in in the Gilmore Project, and I remember even as a young child, when I saw the police, I was automatically on guard. I would think, what have I done, even though I know I haven't done anything. But I really wanted to point out the, the Baton Rouge situation in terms of some context. In 2005, when it had Hurricane Katrina, there were some evacuees um, housed down in a center downtown. The mayor found there was a knife on one uh, of those individuals. The mayor held it up, an African-American mayor, so said, these are the kind of thugs we're dealing with. Now, at that same time, there were uh, officers, state officers from uh, New Mexico and Michigan who were assisting, and they pulled out Mark because they said that the Baton Rouge is way over the top in terms of, of dealing with the citizenship there. That was never investigated. None of those officers were ever called to uh, testify. So, even in many instances where you have police standing by and not saying anything, here you have a case when
0: they did speak up, still under the rug. So before, we, before you roll, I, I'm curious wh- where we are, where you are now in Baton Rouge since we have you on the phone here just very quickly. I mean, we've seen the pictures of uh, Black Lives Matter and other folks on the streets demonstrating um, with some violent confrontations. But even when peaceful, the police officers, are, you know, there's pictures of them in full uh, riot gear, uh, arresting this young woman who was reminiscent of the uh, of Tiananmen Square when she was standing in front of the police with her hands up and just looking at them, and uh, and was dragged away. So, what is what's what what's what's happening at this moment?
6: Well, to be, to be honest, Mark, I, I I've been out of Baton Rouge since uh, June 30th. I'm not returning to the 19th. Okay, gotcha. But I, ha- but I have gotten reports from friends who <coughs> have pointed out that the um. The escalation by the police in full r- ride gear and uh, harassing the, uh, the demonstrators, uh, chasing them and whatnot, that is really was really over, over the top as usual.
0: Well, it was always good to hear from you, um, and I hope we see each other soon when you're in town.
6: All right, then.
0: Thank Take care. 410-319-8880. Kevin, you were, looked like you had a thought here after hearing these last two callers.
2: I'll pass. I, I Really, some of the things that I want to say— you pick and choose when you say them, and i don't think i'm ready to say them just i'm sorry go ahead the, the that said
3: something in and of itself Past. you know you know when you when, when when you think about justice sotomayor's recent dissent about Utah v Streef, another issue about geographic control and illegal stops, and her dissent was so fiery. Uh, that she as a member of the bench is criticizing the framework that's coming from that body that reinforces the constitutionality of certain actions by police officers. And if we go back and we think about the Thirteenth Amendment, slavery is illegal, but there's a key phrase in there, except, except. in instances of punishment for crime. Right. So if you get caught up in the structure, constitutionally, you're classified as a slave. Mm-hmm. So though we've gotten rid of plantation slavery, we've created a new plantation that we now have over-incarceration of black and brown bodies, whether they be male or female. We have the stacking of having to pay for freedom once you go before a commissioner, and your, your cost of freedom is different than mine. So Sandra Bland ends up dying from suicide, uh, not supposedly, uh, 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 supposedly suicide, right. not not because she did anything wrong, but because she couldn't afford the bail and her family couldn't get the money to her in time. And she oh she got arrested after the courts had closed on Friday. So we got to look at how all of these nefarious actions kind of fit together before we start uh, 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 just kind of dismissing all of this stuff. Fits, and we got to figure out how we fix it holistically.
0: Let me get this caller in here. How do I guess Bernard? You're on line one. Welcome.
7: Uh, hi. Uh, hi. I love your show, by the way. Thank you. I, daily. Um, I was a police officer in Baltimore City, and um, uh, I, w- I started out walking a beat, okay, rather than the uh, police car. And one of the things that I remember happened to me was the very first day, I was scared to death, okay? And uh, my boss was like, look, I want to see some order when I come back, you know, yada, yada. And my first thought was, who can I call to meet me so I can turn this stuff down? Well, you know, I got myself together, and I went up, did my job, and the thing I kept in mind every day was I was there to keep the peace, not to always enforce the law. And one of your uh, guests said something about changing the culture, and over the years I've noticed that the language has changed, you know, as law enforcement instead of being a peace officer. And um, I think the fact that you don't have guys walking the feet uh, where you can have uh, uh, interactions with citizens where it's not as a result of a call, but because it's just happenstance because you're a part of the community for eight hours a day. I think that has a lot to do with the community uh, relationship. And um, I've had one other thing to say relative mm-hmm. to that, um, and uh, the thing that I've also noticed, and it's happened to me, when officers brace you or approach you, Um, and you should happen to know the law, I keep a copy of the Constitution in my vehicle, for for example, and uh, you should say to them, hey, no, I object to being searched, or I don't think this is correct. These young men out here now, they will get angry, take it personally. And um, some of them, I've seen this happen to people, they will be arrested and given a quote-unquote walk, you know, down at Central Booking. That didn't used to happen back in the day, because guess what? That desk sergeant, would never let that type of nonsense take place. You know, the guy coming through for nothing because you had you hurt feelings. And I think that's, I think one of the reasons we have the issues is that some of these officers are scared to death of these citizens, particularly those of color, and it's not a job for everyone. And I think the pay being higher has drawn folks who really don't have the, I don't know, going for it. So I'm
0: going to shut up. Well, Bernard, appreciate a call, and maybe you can either give us Powerful your number call. and an email address. But when, when before you before you hang up, so we can get in touch with you, let to hear more about. We want to hear more from police officers and former officers about their thinking of where we are. We're we going to say what Kevin
2: as as we think about um, the role of of race and how we view this. Sort of getting back to that slogan of Black Lives Matter and whether or not it really does. I would caution folks to sort of look at the news coverage, the last 72 hours. We've not only, this is no to take nothing away from or to devalue the lives of the officers in Dallas, but we've even interviewed the physicians that worked on them. And somehow, as we sort of watch this 24-7 news cycle on the lives of these five gentlemen, we've almost been oblivious to the fact that what some 80 folks were shot in Chicago, like a two-day period. It's like, how do you balance that? What does that say? <clears throat> I don't care how poor or educated you are. When you see this, it sends the signal that some some life is far more valuable than mine. The, the, the young man that's arrested in South Carolina for shooting people at a church, he doesn't have to run and hide he gets picked up and taken to Burger King. Yep. That's real.
0: That's very real.
2: <laughs> um, and we have to, We have to begin to address this issue of the value of lives. But I think the tough work is made tougher because as a community, we've got to spend a little more time assessing the value ourselves. Once we race, raise the price.
0: <clears throat> you know, and I think that really is important, Kevin. And there's a stat that I found yesterday that I think really kind of shook me a little bit to the core. And I've been focusing on it ever since. I have not – and this is, this is a fact. This is a stat from 1980 to 2013. Mm-hmm. I've not seen it taken out to 2016 yet, but I want to find that number. 262,000. 262,000 black men in America have been killed since 1980, 2013. 262,000.
2: And that's why I lift up that native I mean, I, period. If I mean, look at that. I mean, that right. I mean, that, you know. we, Charles Dickens, it's the best of times, the worst of times, all right? Tell of two cities. It really is the best of times. But it's also the worst of times. People are doing things and and living in ways we've never imagined. Yet people are dying in ways we never thought possible. Uh, Right. And, and, you know, on the heels of that, 58,000
0: mostly men, brothers, died in Vietnam. Many many of the people I know whose names are on that wall. And um, 58,000 men, 262,000 black men killed in America between 1980 and 2013. This is why, and I think
1: Passeri uh, touched on it, historically, when you look at the design of the policies in this country and the maintaining of certain systems, you know, and, and I heard what you said, a quarter of a million black people killed in this country and men black men black, 62 black, black men, men and and as we know the violence that we uh project upon one another in in our communities is largely is what this is about and when you look at the systems in place that create severe poverty limit the opportunities for people to make money which they need to do we need to do to survive in this country I reflect back to when I was growing up in Reservoir Hill, a child of the 60s, and my father, like a lot of other men in in that community, had their side hustles, you know, to make ends meet. You know, he was a longshoreman, jobs were leaving, which meant the, the port suffered, which meant his paycheck suffered. Luckily, he ran numbers for little Willie Adams, instead of selling drugs right. for others because Lou Willie needs be- his own stamp. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just <laughs> telling you that's the truth. <laughs> because yes. if we had cracked if we had cracked down if we had cracked down on the numbers racket the same way All right. that we cracked down on the war on drugs, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now. I might be one of those numbers.
0: And and, and everybody had that back in the day too. Everybody had I mean the, as 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 um, my second father-in-law, who I adored till he passed away, Willie Stone, said, a man uh, has to have his job and a man has to have his hustle. Mm-hmm. You're going to make it through what you have.
1: But we've, we've <laughs> criminalized, don't get me wrong, you know, we have problems with drug, drug, drug abuse in this country, but that's a health issue. And we've, we've greatly criminalized not just those selling drugs within our communities, but those who are addicted and using drugs in our communities and again, it is systems like this that continue to, to keep segments of the black community in the place that they are, in a place of war among themselves, in addition to war with the police. And you, and you wonder why we have so many murders of young... And then when you have a murder because of the drug trade, and then you have retaliation goes back and forth when you have young people who Sir. just haven't had the
0: guidance that they need from... a and I'm only interrupting because we have 30 seconds left, literally 30 seconds. I'm, I'm no, 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 you're not, I should be sorry. I'm glad you had what you said. Do you have 15-second thoughts to close this out? I would,
2: I would close with this on the issue of race and the lens in which we use to observe it. And I'm going to close with little Willie Adams. He could have very well been demonized, and folks like him were. My yeah. grandfathers were a number of runners. But the reality is that today, most state budgets depend on... A lot of... of room. Yeah, so, at, at, so, so what, what we call the
3: thing... Is, is important, right? It's numbers running in the community. It's a state structure of lottery and funding for mechanisms for the imbalance. I would just say when we look at budgets and we talk to politicians, a budget is a moral document. Where you put your dollars is where you set your priorities, and until we come out of this moral ambivalence, we're going to continue to see the same what results. What the
2: pastor is saying is where a man's treasury is. There will his heart be also. Okay, Amen.
0: Reverend Kevin Satan, Reverend Tideyuri, Major Neil Franklin, thank the three of you so much for being here today. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Mark. See you all, gentlemen, in the studio next week. Yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take a short break and come back and look at the national politics of our nation. Stay with us.